If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 7 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And this morning, we're going to tag this text, Embracing Impermanence. A lot of syllables going on. Embracing impermanence. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, reads, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You may be seated. Embracing impermanence. So tonight, we will have the second presidential debate, which is sure to be about the most insane bloodbath that the world has ever seen. I'm almost imagining Kanye West to come out and say, you know, Hillary, you did great, no, I'm going to let you finish, but Barack Obama had the greatest presidency of all time. <laughs> I'm just imagine, like, I, I wouldn't even be surprised anymore. But in the midst of that humor, it's, it's sad, and I've even got caught up into this, it's sad how we can invest so much emotion into the leadership of our country. And we have to be careful because who is the real president of the universe? God the Father. So regardless whether Hillary Clinton wins or whether Donald Trump wins, my president's already been elected, and he will be king always, and we have to remember this. But what this shows is that we still have a tendency to go back. We want to make the country the way we want to make the country because we feel like this is our only home. We have a hard time with the idea that this life on earth is actually the shortest part of your existence. Now bear with me here. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. If you were a Christian in 1600, the life expectancy wasn't as long back then in general, and you lived 30 years, a devout Christian, and then died, let's say you lived from 1610 to 1640, Ever since 1640, as we know from the book of Hebrews, that uh, one, uh, when you die, you immediately are with the Father. 
That means that from 1640 till now, 1740, 1840, 1940, 2040, so uh, 274 years or something like that, that means that you have had the longest portion of your life in heaven if you live from 1610 to 1640. You were on earth for 30 years, but now you've been in heaven for much longer. Does that make sense? So, right now I'm 30 years old. Statistically speaking, I may live to be hopefully 80, 85, as medicine progresses. But the older I get, the more I realize every day that my life is short and quick and going fast. It's probable that I've lived over a third of my life. And that there would be two more portions of time of what I've already had. So I'm very aware, even at 30, of my mortality, how quickly it's coming. And I'm not afraid, though, because I know that just like a preview before the movie, this is the short part of my existence. The long part's coming later. And just to go back to our previous example, remember the thief on the cross? God said to him, today you will join me in paradise. We're talking 2,000 years ago. How old was that thief? Maybe 40, 50? How long has he been in heaven? For almost 2,000 years. Now, I don't know if time works up there the way it works down here, but for us it does, because he's been gone for 2,000 years. Where has he been? He's been with God for 2,000 years, and he will be with God for an eternity more. And every Christian relative you have or have had who has passed away is experiencing the longest and richest part of their existence. They are not just a memory. They are, in fact, more alive than we are. When my grandfather passed away, it was a sad time. He lay in front of the hall, and we went to him, we saw him, and my mom, in tears, said to me, this was my mom's dad, he is a shell right now. And I thought, that's a little bit disrespectful to say. In my own heart, I thought, this, is, this was your dad. How are you calling him a shell? And then I realized, wait, this is who he, this is not him anymore. In other words, his soul, his consciousness, who he really is, is actually somewhere else. And so he's actually more alive now than we are. He's not dead. He's displaced. He's been moved. He's in the presence of God. And so when I touched his hands, looked at my grandfather, I realized he's watching me right now interact with the human body that he used to live in. What I want this morning to be is a time of embracing impermanence. A time where we realize that who we are is very different from what the world tells us who we are. Who you actually are, your soul, your consciousness, 
is something that will last much longer than the world says it will last, and it is something that is much more valuable than the world says it is. Let me explain why. The world says that you live and then you're done. God says you live for a short while on earth and then you really live for a long time after. The world says that you are a body and that you have intelligence and that your only value is in either your body or your ability to use your intelligence to make money. That's what the world generally says. God says you have a body, you have intelligence and gifts, but that doesn't define you completely. You also have a soul. There's an aspect of yourself, your soul, that God cherishes and wants to save. The world says getting old is bad, age-defying makeup. God says if you're a Christian, you're probably getting better as you're getting older. This logic of, of getting better over time. And then you go to be with him. The world says that there is no heaven and no hell, and that the idea of an afterlife is myth, mythology, that it's fake, that it's false. God says the afterlife is quite real. I am waiting there for you. Jesus is here, and there's a whole host of other saints here who are watching. I think one of the most uh, one of the most damaging things that we've been taught is the idea that heaven and hell and the afterlife is mythology. That's wrong. When anyone ever tells you, oh, heaven and hell is a fairy tale, they're damaging you. They're damaging you. Because God does not see it that way. We do have a future after this life. It is coming quickly. How quickly, you might ask? Did you know that you have almost 10,000 things that are happening in your body that if one of them went wrong, you would drop dead? Life functions in the nervous system, in the brain. Two, th uh, two people die every second in the world. Three people are born every second. I know I use this statistic a lot because it helps me. It helps me to realize how quickly things are going. Check it out. One, two, three. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Across the world, approximately 20 people just died. That's how quickly this is happening. So as we dig into our text, I want this to frame our discussion. That this life is really the shortest part of your overall existence. That life is coming very, very quickly and that we shouldn't define ourselves the way the world does. So going back to verse 7 in chapter 4, the author Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now when he says this treasure, he's referring to the words immediately before. So let's look at chapter 4, and let's start in uh, verse 4. Uh, in their case, uh, that means the unbelieving world, people who don't believe in the gospel, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, this is the message that we have, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, let's focus on this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, we have a message that defines who we are. If you ask the question, what makes me important, or what makes me valuable, or what gives me purpose as a Christian, it's not what you do, or how much money you're able to make, or how educated you are. The thing that gives you purpose as a Christian is the message you carry. The thing that gives you purpose as a Christian is the gospel message that you believe in and that you carry. What's the gospel? The gospel is the message that I'm a sinner, that I need to change, but that I can't do it on my own. And Jesus existed. He lived in the world. God sent him to live a perfect life, die on the cross. When he died, he was taking the punishment I should have gotten for my sins. And then Jesus rose again to show his victory over all of my sins, over death. So that anyone who trusts in Jesus will not be cut off and separated from God because of their sins. God can't be with someone who is in sin, but through Jesus, they can have their sins forgiven. And so when I call out to Jesus, when I yearn for Him, reach out to Him in faith, God says, you were this, now because of Jesus, you are new. You are something different. You are now my child. And you can now be with me in glory, the purpose for which you exist. The purpose for human beings is to be with God who created us. To be in heaven with Him. But we can't because of sin. But if we trust in Jesus, that sin goes away, and so we can be with God. That's a message. It's words. It's an idea. The fact that I have that idea, the fact that you have that idea, it's in your brain, hopefully you believe it, that's what gives you value. That's what gives you worth and purpose. Because what is more worthy and purposeful than being with God? Is there anything more important than being with God? And you have the way to get there now. I just told you. I have it. You have it. We have this message now. And so everything else, that's just stuff we'll do in the meantime. House, car, career, whatever. That's just stuff in the meantime. But now you have the message. This is what we carry in jars of clay. I am a jar of clay carrying a message that's much more valuable than me. Imagine you have a cup with two pounds worth of pure platinum inside it. You don't say, that's an amazing cup. You say, what's in that cup is amazing. I could put two pounds of pure platinum, pure gold, inside a paper bag, inside a cup, inside a cardboard box, it doesn't matter what it's in, it's the message itself. Right now, on my own, without God, without the message that I just told you, I'm not worth very much. 
I might have a few skills here and there, I might have a little knowledge here and there, but at the end of the day, I'm just a paper bag. It doesn't mean I don't have value. It just means that apart from God, there's really not much that I can offer the world. Because what does the world need most? It needs God himself. So when verse 7 says we have this treasure, he's talking about the gospel message in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So before we go any further, I want us to be able to tell ourselves impermanence, the sense of fragility that we have, is a good thing. It's good that we could go quickly. It's good that we're very small and very fragile. It's good and not bad that our lives are so quick. The world will tell us it's not good, but we can say it is good. It's a good thing. Why? Because we want people to depend on God and look to him and not just to us or our skill or our might. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.20. 2 Timothy 2.20. Um, so what we're going to see here is, is something interesting about clay. When it says jars of clay, what are we talking about? It says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So does that mean that I'm a dishonorable person if I am a jar of clay, as this passage says, that we are jars of clay? No, it doesn't mean that we're dishonorable. It just means that on our own, we don't have a lot of that shine or that that amazingness, that beauty, that purpose, that worth. That's what it's trying to convey right here. Jars of clay just simply means that we're, we're passing, we're fleeting. No one looks at a jar of clay and says, I want to put that up on my wall and, and shrine it and sell it in a museum. So we shouldn't look to ourselves as what makes us valuable, but the message. This is reiterated again. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.1, just next door to our passage. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now what's he talking about? He's saying that our body, just like it's a jar of clay, just like it's quick and, and, and it can go quickly, it's, it's not on its own very valuable. We also have a tent, it says. Our bodies are like a tent, meaning that, that it's, it's just something you put up and take down quickly, right? And, and he says, if the tent is destroyed, we don't worry because we have a future, we have a home in the heavens, eternal, right? So again, impermanence is the idea. Whether it's a jar of clay, whether it's a tent, our bodies are not our kingdom. This world now is not our kingdom. That's the idea. Let's look at um, Job 10.9. So Job 10.9. Job 10.9 says this, Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? This is what Job says to God. Job acknowledges his own impermanence. 
his own fragility. You have made me like clay. Will you return me to the dust? So are you getting the picture here? These, these passages are all kind of saying the same thing. We are small. We are fragile. We can be broken quickly. Things can change very quickly. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Think about it this way. If we were our own kingdoms, do you think we would trust in God well? We wouldn't. We wouldn't put our faith and our confidence in him because we would, in fact, be the ultimate uh, measure of our existence. But God is saying, no, I want you to be fragile and small because I don't want you to put too much confidence in your life here on earth. There is a future for you, and I don't want you to forget about that future. And I don't want you to forget to tell others about how to get to that future. That's the idea. Is it starting to come clear a little bit? Okay, let's look at 1 Peter 3.7. This is an interesting passage. Now, ladies, don't get mad at me on this one. I'll explain it. Everything will be explained. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, when it says weaker, that means physically weaker. Okay? That does not mean mentally weaker. Okay, it just means physically, it's just true, you know, men and women are, have different physical strength, that's okay. But the word I want to focus in on is the word vessel. He just uses it so casually, the weaker vessel. What does he mean by vessel? He means that like a ship carrying something, we're just here on a journey carrying something, and then when that something is carried through, the ship goes away. So our bodies are vessels. Vessels, meaning that we're not permanent in the ground, deeply rooted, and this is the rest of our life on here. It just means that we're going through this earth for 60, 70, 80 years, and then it's over. Like a ship carrying one thing from one place to another. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so just a few weeks ago, I flew on an airplane from Cincinnati to Denver, Colorado. And on that plane, the last thing I want to do is take that plane with me to the conference where I was speaking. I'm not going to drive that plane through the streets of the city. That plane is a vessel. It's designed to take me from one place to another, and then when it's done taking me, I go my separate ways, and the, and the plane does something else. The plane is not the most important thing. It's the message inside the plane, the people inside the plane. In analogy, we are carriers of the message. We take it where we're supposed to take it, to whom we're supposed to take it, and then we go away. It doesn't mean we don't have value. It just means that that's our purpose in this life. Is to love and to know and to enjoy God. To talk about God. To speak about God with people. To live our lives. To do our thing. And then we die. And then we go to be with heaven. And then our bodies are in the grave. And it's okay. I am perfectly okay with the very, very likely reality that no one will know my name a hundred years after I die. I'm fine with that. The vast majority of the 100 billion or so people who have ever lived, no one knows who they are. Who's ever heard of Felix Mendelssohn? No one. He was that dude 200 years ago in Europe. Everybody knew his name. No one knows his name now. Same with us. We're just here, we're going to go, and that's okay. Vessels. Okay, let's keep rolling. So... Um, we, 
it, there's a logic here that says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. Meaning that if people gravitate just to you and not to God because of you, then something's wrong. Does that make sense? There's a design here. God wants it so that we are small, impermanent, and fragile, so that people will focus on the message we tell them and not just on us. Does that make sense? It says so that. There's a, there's a logic here. We have this message in small, impermanent jars so that people will focus on God and not just us. Think of it this way. If you... so. So I have a friend who's getting engaged very soon. He, in fact, I helped him get the ring, and he's planning it out. He has a very beautiful and elaborate plan. I'm excited for this, because I helped him pick out the ring, so I'm almost like I'm there with you in spirit. <laughs> now, um, he took the ring to our apartment, and he asked me to keep it for him, because he's not going to you know, be around his, his uh, soon-to-be fiancé with that gigantic cube all, all the time, right? He needs me to keep it for him. Now, I'm going to give it to him, and he's going to go on a trip, and, and then they're going to get engaged. Now, if he got down on that knee, and that fiancé, his fiancé, looked at the box that he was holding the ring in and says, oh my gosh, I love that box. I love it. It's so symmetrical, and, and it's so smooth, and it's a great ring, but that box, though, that box. How do you think my friend would feel? Totally disappointed. The point is the ring, not the box. You get the analogy? The point is what's inside the ring, or inside the box, not the box itself. Just like us. The point is not me. The point is what's coming out of my mouth. The point is what's inside me. It's the message. It's the truth that I live for that makes me valuable. And then I'm going to go away. And it's going to be okay, because when I go away... The message is still going to live on, right? The most important part about my life is the part of my life that existed before I was even born, which is the gospel message, which I'm going to speak for the rest of my life, and then when I die, 50, 100, 200 years after, that message is still going to be there, and other people are going to carry it on. And that's a good thing. I'm okay. Let me go on a tangent real quick. There are a lot of people who tell small business owners, entrepreneurs, etc., you've got to be great, you can do great things in this world. And they say, drive to succeed. Drive to succeed. And I say, yes, that's true, but I have to be careful. Because if I take that message too far what will happen is I'll inevitably, I'll inevitably just try to build my little kingdom. I don't want that. I don't want that in my life. I want to work hard. I want to, I want to drive to succeed and build a business and everything, but I don't want to make it so that that's my kingdom. Right? So I have to walk this tightrope every day, and you guys can pray for me. I have to walk this tightrope between working really hard and driving to succeed and doing my best, but not letting that become my ultimate project. So it's almost like I need to push, but also hold it with a loose hand. Because anything can be taken away in an instant. And so that's a, that's a struggle in my own heart. 
just so you know. Um, now, when it says the power belongs to God and not to us, does that mean that we don't have any power? No, it's just that we have power because God's using us to give his power, right? So we're not trying to communicate that we don't have any power or we don't have any worth. We're just saying that our worth and our power in our life comes from God. It's derivative of him. And we should point to him when people notice anything good in our lives. So let's look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 2.5. So just next door. 1 Corinthians 2.5. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached so that his hearers would put their confidence not just in his intelligence or his wisdom, but in the power of God. Let's look at Galatians 6.14. Some of you may know this by memory. It's the next book the other way. Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So once again, the theme, the idea, my boasting, Paul's boasting, is in what God has done through the cross. That's what we should focus on because that's what matters in the end. Who cares if I impress people if I don't do anything to save their soul? Who cares if I show off for someone if I do nothing to point them in God's direction? I could get a thousand likes on Instagram or Facebook for a picture I post, but what does that mean if I'm not also, in general, pointing people in God's way? That's the idea. He says, far be it from me for people to look at me and people to look at my wisdom, but not God, because I'm not doing anything for them. I'm not helping them, ultimately. So we have this treasure, this message in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. We're impermanent, we're fragile, we're vessels, we're coming and going, and we could go at any time, but that's okay. The world will say it's not okay, but it is okay. Because I'm already set, I'm already secure. I have a future and a hope with God. So I'm okay if things don't go exactly the way I want to now. Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair. Now the author Paul here switches from what we call epistle language, meaning explaining a theological idea, to poetic language. So immediately he goes into poetry mode, but I want to be careful here. Just because he's getting poetic doesn't mean that he's no less serious. Sometimes when we hear people saying poetry, we're like, oh, that's cool, but, you know, that's not as serious. No, no, he is serious here. His poetry is just as theological as anything else that he writes. It points to a reality, a truth about God. It's not just fluff. It's stuff. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Meaning that you will not be crushed or ultimately destroyed ever as a Christian. No matter how many hits you take, you've already won the victory through Jesus, and you already have a future with Him. And so every hit that, you, that comes, know that it will not kill you. It will not ultimately defeat you. That's the idea here. And he says this in parallel several times. Uh, you are perplexed but not driven to despair. Even if you are confused, perplexed, unsure, God will never let you get driven ultimately to a point of no return. He will always have you and commit to you. Even if you get killed, you will not die. Because God has your soul already. You are okay in Christ, through Christ. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You might be persecuted with words, with actions, with the sentiments and feelings of others, but God will not forsake you in the midst of that persecution. Now let's take a, a pause here. There's a connection that I don't think many of us would notice right away. If you are a jar of clay, and if you are confident that this life is not your most important life, or not your longest life, the longest life comes after, if you are convinced of your fragility, then it won't be a big struggle for you when pain comes. If you are convinced that this life is short and temporary, then when trial comes, it won't hurt you as badly because you know that, well, I've got the other life coming. I've got the other life coming. So one of the benefits of embracing impermanence and rejoicing in how short this life is and rejoicing in how fragile you are is when pain comes, it doesn't hit you as hard. Let me try to provide an analogy for this. Let's say that you are uh, in your car and uh, you have a 10-minute trip in the middle of the blazing summer from your house to the grocery store. All of a sudden, your air conditioner shuts down. I don't know, the radiator, maybe it's the water pump, something. It's gone. And your windows are permanently stuck in the up position. You are hot. You are boiling hot. And if you're like me, you're super sweaty. Your seat's getting sweaty. Your steering, you can't even hold the steering wheel because your hands are so sweaty. I mean, it's, I'm terrible at this stuff. Now, because you have the knowledge that you are only 10 minutes from the grocery store, or better yet, 10 minutes from the mechanic, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. Why? Because you recognize the impermanence of your situation. Because of your knowledge of the future, it allows you to deal with the present. If you didn't know that you were close to the mechanic, then you might be a little bit more stressed out. You might not have as easy a time managing the heat in that car because you have no sense of when it will end. 
and you're thinking, is this my only life? Is this all that there is? Me being in this hot car? So, here you can see the connection. Knowing the impermanence of your situation on earth will give you a better time when pain comes. It will help you deal with it more effectively. This is the connection here. This is why Paul jumps from jars of clay to perplexed but not driven to despair. Saying, you're a vessel, you're going to come and go quickly, you're, you're fine. Verse 10 uh, or struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because no one can touch your future. I needed to emphasize that too. No one can touch your future if you have Jesus. If you have Christ, no one can say or do anything that can take away your connection to Him. If someone says to you, you are a failure or you will never measure up to anything or you are damaged goods, or someone uses abusive language like that, then you tell them, my God says otherwise, because I have a future with them. And I'll be there a lot longer than the time that you took to tell me these negative words. If anyone has ever said anything to you to make you feel small, or to make you feel insignificant, embrace Jesus, trust in Jesus, and then know that that is who you are, not a lie that someone tells you. You are better than someone's lie. Believe that this morning. Verse 10 says, We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's say what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus is dying on the cross in my body. So this is not literal, obviously. Jesus has already died and has already risen again. So it can't mean that Jesus, in some poetic or metaphorical way, continues to die in me. So when it says carrying the death of Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus is still dying here. I think what it means, and we're going to look at some scriptures to support this, is that as Jesus suffered, as Jesus endured pain, so we also endure suffering in similar ways. Not to the extent Jesus did, but in analogy with him. So as Jesus suffered, I suffer too. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings. We share in the pain that he felt, and he's able to sympathize us when we do share in the pain that he felt. But then it says, we carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. A little confusing. This is why Peter says, Paul says things that are hard to understand. But when a verse like this is hard to understand, what we can do is we can look at verses around it. When Scripture is unclear, look at the other more clear parts of Scripture. From the same author, even. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, 9. Literally on the same page. 2 Corinthians 6, 9 says, As unknown, 
and yet well known as dying, and behold, we live as punished and not yet killed. So very similar to this kind of poetry that he used before. So he says, we are dying, but we live. So even as we are suffering in our physical flesh, there is a part of us that is actually growing more alive by the day. Okay, so we're getting closer to what he means. Okay, 1 Corinthians 4.9. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4.9. Um, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. So this is actually the verse that comes right before. Sometimes we need to look at the verses around a confusing verse. And this verse comes right before. It says we're struck down but not destroyed. So this supports the idea that we just read in 2 Corinthians 6, that we are dying and living at the same time. That makes sense, right? As our bodies fade away, so our hearts and our souls and our minds are being renewed day by day. So this is part of what he's trying to get at. That's true. What about 1 Corinthians 15, 31? 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Hmm. So, we're getting closer. I die every day. So he can't mean that we literally die every day, but that we are dying and fading away. And that's okay. I meant to go to 1 Corinthians 4.9, not 2 Corinthians 4.9. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4.9. Your Bible should be all filled with handprints by the end of the sermon. 1 Corinthians 4.9 says this, For I think that God has exhibited or shown off us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Interesting. So what is he saying here? Maybe part of what he means that we are sharing in Christ's death, or that we bear in our bodies Christ's death every day, is just as Christ came and suffered, and was shown off in his suffering, so we will also suffer, we will die, we will slowly fade away from this world, and people will watch, but the thing that will shock them is that our message will not die even though our bodies do. This world has seen people before who are willing to go to death itself, literal physical death, because they believe so strongly in the gospel message. Now, I don't know if we will have to go through that in our generation in America. I, I wonder sometimes if maybe Audrey will, our daughter, she'll live into the 22nd century. She very well may live to the year 2100. By then, could she be killed for her faith? It's very hard to think of that thought, but it is possible. And that's something that I'm preparing my heart for. To be in heaven and imagining watching that happen. But even if it does, the truth is that the truth is. Y'all catch that? The truth is that the truth is. And even if I suffer, even if our daughter does, even if some of us do, the truth is going to stay regardless of what happens to us.
Let's look at Romans 6.5. Just a few books before, written by the same author. Romans 6.5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's read the verses immediately prior, Romans 6, 1. Shall we, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this, this is perhaps the clearest explanation of what the author is getting at when he says that we are carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Meaning... That 2,000 years ago, Jesus literally physically died and literally physically rose again. Now, 2,000 years later, when you accept Jesus, when you call out to him to come into your life, you actually share in his death. Meaning that all the suffering that he went through, the death that he had, is in some way a part of who you are because your sin was put on him. You share in his death even if you don't physically die. And so therefore, because Jesus paid for your sins, when you accept Jesus, you get that payment as part of your life as well. Okay? Think of it this way. When you go to purchase something, you swipe your card, and you purchase it, and it's yours. When you go check your bank account online, your bank account says negative the amount that you spent, right? It hurts a little bit. You're like, that's $34 down that I could have had for something else. But you also have whatever you paid that $34 for. In that way, you are caring in yourself the debt, or the expense. That is on your record, meaning that $34 down is part of your bank account now forever. In the same way, when Jesus died, he paid a certain expense for you to be saved. His payment, just like that payment on your bank account, will always be there in you and for you. It's his death. It was a price that was paid, except he paid it and not you. So just like you can go back to your statements on your bank account years and years ago and see something that was paid one day, Christ also paid something for you that will always be on your account. Does that make sense? Your debt is cleared. Or let's put it this way. Let's make it more severe. Let's say that you um, were wrongfully jailed for something and someone bailed you out, their bail money will always be on your record. You can always look back to that payment and say, that's part of what made things right. 
Jesus' payment is always on your record. And in that way, you carry his death because his death was a payment. But you also carry in yourself the life of Jesus, meaning that just as his death was a part of your payment process to get paid so that you could be in heaven, when he rose again, his life also defines you. You are, if Jesus didn't rise again, then you wouldn't go to, we wouldn't go to heaven, I don't think. Because uh, Paul says this, if, if, if Jesus did not rise again, then we are men much to be pitied. But because Jesus did rise again, you will rise again as well. You're connected to Jesus in every way. What he has done and what he is doing defines who you are. So when Jesus comes back, in a way you can say, that's, that's me. I'm connected to him. He's coming to get me. He has risen for me, died for me. He is my God, my King, my Lord, and I want to go be with him. I think this is what Paul's getting at when he says that we carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, these bodies are the jars of clay. What makes me valuable is not my body, but the God who has saved my body. The God whose truth dwells in me. Does this come clear? Is this making sense? We're impermanent, but that's okay because we can take pain when it comes, knowing that we have a future. And it's also okay because what makes us worthy is not how strong our bodies are or how strong our human lives are, but rather the God who has saved us. Verse 11, For we who uh, live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. In, when he says this, he's talking about literally persecution. People literally persecuted him for being a Christian, given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 11 is essentially a repeat of verse 10. Paul says, even when I'm persecuted, that's a good thing, because you give, that gives me an opportunity to show how valuable Jesus is to me. To show what Jesus means to me. You know how they, they say you don't really know what's inside a cup until you start shaking it? Then you see it really spill out? You don't really know who you are until you get rattled? Until life comes and hits you? Of course you could say I'm fine when everything's going fine. And you can act like everything's great. But when a challenge comes is when you find out who you really are, Right? And if you're a vessel, I hope that Jesus is what's inside that cup when it gets shaken. When the world sees you shake and sees Jesus come out of that, they will glorify God. Some of them won't believe it, but some will. And it's a good thing. This is the idea. When Paul says, I'm being given over to death so that Jesus might be manifested in my body, he's saying that when I'm persecuted, you're going to hear a lot of Jesus come out of me. And then the world will see that, and they will glorify God. Jesus is manifested in my life when I suffer, because that's when I talk about him the most. When you're falling, you're going to grab on to what you think is most secure. Does that make sense? When you're falling, you're going to grab on to what you think is most secure. If you think that people are more secure than Jesus, you're going to grab on to people in your times of need, and not cry out to God first.
verse 12 says, So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, when he says life in you, who is he talking to? He's talking to a particular church, a church that he helped start. And he says that life, life happens in that church when he suffers. Why? Because they see him, again, spilling out of himself the gospel message, his hope in Jesus. He's grabbing onto Jesus in his time of need. That gives people hope as well, as they might be persecuted. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 13.9. 2 Corinthians 13.9 says this, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Wow. So this is interesting. This is an interesting thought. Sometimes your suffering is not just about you. God may very well be using your suffering as an example for other people to see what it looks like to suffer well. Think of that. Your suffering may not even be about you so much as it's about the people around you so that they can witness what it means to glorify God in pain so that you can teach them how to suffer. When did you ever think of yourself as a teacher in your suffering? But people are watching, aren't they? They're very closely watching our lives, more than we know. And so when we suffer well, and when we can, in our time of need, not cling to the things that the world would cling to, but cling to Jesus and speak often of Jesus in our suffering, that gives life to people. That's a demonstration, an example, a guide for them. There very well may come a time quickly when Christians won't necessarily be killed for their faith in America, not quickly, but persecuted. I wonder, this is just speculation, but I wonder if a watching world that does not believe in Jesus, when they see Christians really begin to get pushed back and, and hammered in by society, I wonder if that will actually make our witness stronger. I don't know, this is just speculative, but I wonder. Because when you see someone suffer and still cling to Jesus, that shows you something about their faith. All that the American watching world has seen is Christians who are doing pretty well and who really don't struggle a lot. But what about when we start to really get hammered, when, when, when certain financial and infrastructural blessings are taken away from Christians and, and, and people put more pressure? A lot of Christians are going to leave, Right? Right? It's easy to be a Christian when it's, when it's culturally acceptable to be a Christian, but what about when it's culturally unacceptable to be a Christian? What about when you're going against the media and going against um, the dominating political voices of our time? What happens then? Will you stay strong? If you stay strong, people are going to be fascinated by you. They're going to be fascinated by you because they're going to say, what, what would cause this person to embrace suffering in their life? to embrace people mocking them? How could you let people make fun of you and let the media and let, uh, let our politicians make fun of you and our city officials for the rest of your life? Why would you do something like that? And then that's a chance for us to say, I do something like that because this life is actually very short and I want people to see that Jesus is very real and that heaven and hell are very near and very close. In that moment, some people will say, well, okay, you're crazy, or... They'll say, 
Tell me more about this. So as suffering comes, embrace it, knowing that you will not be destroyed if you're struck down. You will not be driven to despair, knowing that the suffering that you're facing is just for a very short time anyway, because you have a future that comes after this, and knowing that your body and your life now is actually just a preview of the rest of it. It's a loading screen. When you watch a loading screen on Netflix, you don't say, this is a great movie. You say, I'm getting ready for this movie. We are living in the loading screen right now. The short time before the rest of our eternity. It's okay if things don't go our way. So this morning, I pray that we walk out of here, uh, if we're Christians, we walk out of here with um, a, a willingness to embrace impermanence, to embrace the shortness, the quickness of our life, to embrace the fragility of our life, and to not uh, cling to this life as if it's the only life we have. I pray that we can walk away knowing that anytime suffering or pain or issues come, that one, it's just going to be a short while. Two, it's okay because your ultimate victory is secure. Don't get mad when the battle goes bad because the war has already been won. Don't get mad when the battle goes bad because the war has already been won. And then I pray that also we will see ourselves as, if you're a Christian, carrying the death of Jesus in you, meaning you can see on your bank account records in your soul the payment that Jesus gave for you. You're carrying his death. And you're also going to be raised with him. When he comes back, he's going to look right at you and say, that's my child. So this morning, even though the world says one thing about forever young, I want to be forever young. Don't listen to that. Even though the world says one thing about beauty and age-defying this and forever young this, don't listen to that because we're just living in the preview right now. This is just the loading screen. And you have a message in your loading screen to tell people because their future is coming up very quickly. So if you are not a Christian, I want to beg you and encourage you if you're unsure, or if church has just been a thing where you do it just to do it, or because grandma did it, or because your cousins do it, or whatever, I'm begging you. This is not a game. Um, your soul, right now, is before God. You do have a future, and that future will be in heaven or in hell. Um, and you can ensure that your future is with God through confessing that you are a sinner. Acknowledge that you cannot change on your own. Admitting that Jesus loves you. Going to Jesus. Asking him to save you. Trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. You may have heard this before, but don't write me off. Don't write me off. Trust in Jesus. Turn to him. He wants to save you and forgive you of your sins. When you cling to him in faith, when you say, Jesus, I want you to save me, and you genuinely mean it, that means that Jesus' death a long time ago actually wipes out your sins. It forgives your sins so that you are now different. You are now a child of God. If you're unsure about this, talk with me, talk with Pastor Maceo, talk with other leaders in our church. 
so that you can be sure. I know Jesus and I want to be saved. I want to be changed. And I want to have a future in heaven with him. This life is not all there is. And if this life is all there is, then that's a terrible life to live because this life has a lot of pain in it. So this morning, if you're unsure, talk. We are here to pray with you, to listen to you, to hear your heart. Embrace the impermanence of this life and cling to the permanence of God's future for you, of God's glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have a future in heaven with you if we are Christians, that we are not unsure about what happens after we die. It's not like we just turn to nothing. It's not like we just cease to exist, Lord. You are very, very, very clear in your word that there is a very different thing that happens when we die. And we stand right in front of you, for it is appointed once for a man to, to, uh, to die, and then after that to face judgment. Dear Lord, we want to be on the right side of things with you. We want to know you rightly. We want to be saved by Jesus so that we can stand before you confidently, so that we can have uh, full, full protection from your wrath and then full love from you because you love uh, your Son and you love those whom your Son has saved. Dear Lord, forgive us of our sins. Give us the, the, the need and the passion to turn from our sins, to reject those things that put Jesus on the cross, and to run to you. Help us to embrace the impermanence of our life. Embrace the shortness, the fragility, the, the quickness of this life. To not put so much stock in what people think of us, how we look, how successful we're becoming in the world's eyes. Help us, Lord, to just see that as, as a preview to a movie or a loading screen. Just, it's, it's coming so quick and it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but what does matter is your gospel, the truth. And, and whether we hear it, and then whether we, we uh, pass that on to the world around us. Help us to shape our lives around communicating the gospel message with the dying world, God. Um, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my shortcomings. The um, amazingly abundant ways that I have fallen short and, and not, not lived true to this myself. Lord, forgive me for that. Um, dear Lord, if there is someone here who is hurting, unsure, uncertain, maybe clinging to the wrong things in life, God, work on their hearts. Uh, give them a sense of peace and lead them to your word. Lead them uh, to, to communicate with other believers. Lead them uh, to talk with us. Lead them whatever they need to do so that they might be right with you. Dear Lord, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The doors of the church are now open. to him.